friends, these people were telling me for years, Jackie Kendrick, you gotta quit. You know? And, uh, I could look around me and see a lot of people that were drinking and not getting in trouble. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't drink like they did. And I sit up there in my room now, in that same chair, and I look down on the little town of Laguna Beach, and there are 15,100 people in Laguna Beach. The last count. And 15,000 of them can do things I can't do. And they're all God's kids. How come? They can eat a little and drink a little. Love a little and hate a little. Judge a little and resent a little. Lie a little and cheat a little. They're God's kids, same time. How come they can do that? And I can't. Simply because as yet, they have not run out of time. And there's another thing that they can do that you and I never could do. They can eat a little and drink a little. You and I never could do that. We've always figured that anything that was worth doing was worth doing to excess. <laughs> So, we run out of time. They haven't run out of time yet. And it is my opinion that it doesn't make any difference to the universe when they run out of time. Whether it's now or 500 years from now, don't make any difference. Sooner or later, every one of us has to come back home to the living God that made it. Because we're all God's kids. But the timing don't count with the universe. It counts with me. <laughs> Life is pretty good living it with you guys. You ain't with a damn living out there in that jungle where I used to live. So that's the deal. So, our motivation is to add to, to go about our father's business doing things for his kids that they need to have done because we want to. And that's what our 12-step tells us to do. How do you have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps? We tried to turn this message to alcoholics, to God's kids, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs with God's kids in every department of uh, our lives. At home, in business, in training. In a and so if our motivation is love and we do these things for fame for fun, the only thing that the law can give us back is love. This is the motivation, this is the way it works. And it totally goes away with the necessity of God of judgment. It's built in. It's built in, right there it is. What you sow, you reap. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, I can go right down the middle of the road with a God 
and order, a God of love, a law of justice without judgment, and go right down the middle of the road with that. But I can't go a foot with the God that they told me about when I was a kid. You see? They told me that God would take my kids away from me in death to punish me for my sins. I said when I was that hot, if there's a God like that, I'm going to get me a pitchfork and join with the devil. If I ever catch him, I'm going to stick that pitchfork through him. Because I could not accept the God of that time. And I don't know. My insides wouldn't have it. And they still don't. But a God of love and a great law of justice without judgment, I can go with. It's a fantastic thing. <clears throat> I don't happen to believe in good or bad. I don't happen to believe in right or wrong. I don't happen to believe in two worlds. I believe in one world. I believe in that. This is an experience. But it's not reality. The Cardinal said, judge not according to appearances, but judge righteous judgment. <clears throat> that means that pretty soon we see ourselves in all men and all men in ourselves. And we look through the condition to the thing behind it. I haven't seen a drunk now for 20 years. It's been 20 years since I've seen a drunk. And when I was in business, my plant was at 40th and Alameda. And every time I went downtown, if time permitted, I went to the head of 5th Street and drove west. It drew me like a magnet. And then every time I ever went into Fifth Street, the Black Mariah was just in front of me, just behind me. And I knew that Black Mariah inside and out. I've ridden in her in chains. And all the boys on the street knew her, too. And they knew the rag pickers were sitting right there, you know, when they pick them up. And here's a little wino, you know, with his bottle and his brown paper bag. So nobody know what he's got. <laughs> There's nothing that looks the most like a bottle of wine in a brown paper bag as a bottle of wine in a brown paper bag. <clears throat> so he sees his rag trickers coming, you know, and he tries to get in the alley, and he goes flat on his ass about strike that. <laughs> I got four times running for the alley, but he don't break that bottle. He breaks his fatty, but he don't break that bottle. And he gets into the alley. And I say, thank God. Thank God. Because that's me. That's me, but with the grace of God. And I go on down the street, and here's this little boy in the doorway. It's uh, too loud. He's got on two overcoats. Black one and the gray one. 
An old fish in the doorway, and this bottle's right out the open. This half full. Red eye. And he's sitting there laughing and talking with his friends and having a hell of a time. And he sings on camp. And I can't hardly drive by it. I'm going to leave that car mine right in the middle of history and go and pick him up and set him on my lap. Because that's me, that's the grace of God. You see, I used to wear my overcoat in July. I used to meet the people, talk to them. They talked to me and we had a hell of a time. We went around. One of the things that made the biggest impression on my family, I think, of all the things I did, drunk. As many times we'd all be in the same living room and I'd have company and they wouldn't have any. And they couldn't understand it. So we don't judge according to appearances. We look through the appearance and see God's kid right under that crud. And we share with him. We share our experience, strength, and hope one with another in love. And that's the reason our program works and nothing else does. Without the sharing, without the caring, there would be no recovery from alcoholic phenomenon. <clears throat> now, I told you a little bit ago, it's my business what I think of you. And it's your business what you think of me. That is not my business unless you want to make it some of my business. It never concerns me. I never wonder, even. I don't have to because I love you. And love is a complete thing within itself. It's like virtue. When virtue recognizes itself as virtue, it immediately becomes vice. Virtue is its own reward. Love is its own reward. The fulfillment of the law. So, I don't have to wonder about it. Now, in personal relations, This has the greatest meaning on the face of the earth. Because, you see, all of us are God's kids. And all of us do what we have to do. Because all of us have obsessions to mind. Now, in my only experience in alcoholic Anonymous, I thought that obsessions of mind were a part of my disease. But the earth people didn't have any right to them. You know, this is, uh, they're not alcoholics. Alcoholism is due to the twofold nature. And allergy is a body coupled with an obsession of the mind. There is no allergy of the body, so they can't have the obsession of the mind. I was just for drunk. But in living a while, I had to come to see. That we're all God's kids. And any one of us are doing the best we can according to our life. That is, according to our understanding. People don't do what they do because they want to, but because they have to. <clears throat> Just as I drank and you drank against my own will. We have to come to see that 
obsessions of the mind, whoever has them, are greater than the willpower. When the will and the imagination and or the emotions are in conflict, the emotions and the imagination always win. We drank against our own will. And so, people don't do what they do because they want to, but because they have to. The man never lived that disliked me enough to have to tear me down. The only reason that anybody tries to tear me down is to build himself up. And when we come to see this, people can't hurt us. There's no way that you can hurt us. When we know better, we do better. Now, this is this fools a lot of people. Because they think, because they know these things intellectually, they know them. They don't. I knew everything I know now that is of consequence in my life 40 years ago. Except one thing. The disease of alcoholism. I didn't know anything about that. I believed everything I believe now that is consequential to my way of life 40 years ago. I was born believing in God. I never got drunk enough not to believe in God. I believe in God's good, but it's not good enough. If you are drunk, living in God, is the only answer there is. The conscious awareness of the living presence of the Almighty. The only answer there is. In Him I live and move and have my being. So, when we know better, we do better. I knew it from here up, 40 years ago. I know it from here up and down now. <clears throat> and I don't show what I am unwilling to read too often. I do it. I do it. Many people uh, think that I don't make any mistakes. <laughs> Once I thought I was wrong, but I was mistaken there. <laughs> but I have a little trick that I wouldn't say it again for a million dollars. <clears throat> I share everything in life with my God. Everything, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. I share it and dump it. For instance, when I do a lousy stunt, which I do once in a while, too often, I take it into my closet with me and I say, look, Dad, look what I did yesterday. And there's a lousy thing for a guy like me to do. I knew better when I did it. But I had to make an impression. She was awful pretty. 
don't like it, then you don't like it. And I'm going to do better. And with your help, I'll do a lot better. Sure thing. And I dump it. Never pick it up again. And when the good thing happens, I do the same thing with it. I say, look, Father, isn't this beautiful? It shouldn't happen to a bum like me, but it did. And I know where it came from. Sure, thank you. And I've done that. I think it's just as tough on us to try to carry the so-called good as the so-called bad. We don't need either one of them because this life should be spontaneous. We don't need any impediments. Get rid of the whole business and start each day anew. But no yesterdays and no tomorrow. Spontaneous life. <clears throat> now the golden key to this thing called life. Oh, Harold back there has been waiting on it for 20 some, how many? 20, 24? 20 years he's been waiting for this. <clears throat> he follow me around. You know, Doc Rendon followed me around for five years, waiting for me to drop the golden key. They knew that sometime, by mistake, I'd steal it, and they'd, they'd be there to get it. But every time they'd come down and take up the whole night yakking in my living room, I would tell them, look, I'd give you this key every time you ever heard me talk. I'd give it to you. All you got to do is do these simple things. They knew there was something else. So I'm going to give him that golden key after 20 years. The golden key to this thing called life is rigorous self-honesty. Rigorous self-honesty. Why? Because we have a monitor with us. We didn't put it there and we can't dislodge it. The religious call it conscience. This is another thing I don't understand. Don't know anything about. I call it God. God in me, as me, is me. I'm not God, but God is me. Infinitely greater than I because he's all you. As well as me. But not different from, other than, or apart from, but a part of. Because now I'm consciously aware of the living presence of the Almighty. So, the golden key to this thing called life is rigorous self-honesty, because the pattern's right here. Now, when I perform according to the best I know, and the pattern's right here, it's not the mountain, it's not the temple, it's not in Jerusalem, it's in your own mouth that you might know it and do it. It's right here. When I perform according to the best I know, there seems to be a nod of approval from the universe. And they call that peace of mind. When I perform less than my best, the old sausage gun is right here too. And it starts screwing me up. Oh, Chuck, why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? The only way I can get rid of it is to see it for what it is, decide to do better. I will forgive from God. I have this too.
I don't see how a man can fall out of a chair when he's sitting in it, can you? <laughs> I don't believe this means that we go back to our lives and redo the step four. I think this means that we look at our day. How closely are we living according to these principles today? How are we doing today? Step 10 has been very, very, very important to me because up until the time I got in this program, there was no way that I could say, I don't know. There's no way I could say I don't know, particularly in business. You will say I don't know in business. They ask you anything and you answer. Yeah. <laughs> no way could I say I don't know. I'm quite sure that if you'd asked me to explain Einstein's theory, I'd explain it. Yes, now God created the earth out of truth. And I very likely would have said, now on the third day we did thus and so. <laughs> I couldn't say, I don't know. Like in the program. And I learned that the truth was the most powerful thing on earth. By doing the things that the program told me to do. Just by doing it. In business, I learned to say I don't know. If that question's important, tomorrow I'll know the answer to it. Tomorrow it is. In anything, why I didn't know, I said I don't know. And that's very easy because you don't have to remember what you said. When you don't tell them something that you don't know, you don't have to remember. Tell them the truth. You don't have to remember. Another thing is I was wrong. Well, I didn't go around saying I was wrong. I think I told you this morning. Once I thought I was wrong, but I was mistaken. <laughs> now, the 24th day of June of this year, if we live, and if Mrs. She don't divorce me between now and then, we'll have 50 years. Double harness. Little time out for bad behavior. <laughs> and I catch myself now saying to my wife, I was wrong. You were right all the time. I would have sworn that I was right, that I was wrong all the time. Now that's awful. You know, you've married the same broad for 50 years. 
and tell her you're wrong. <laughs> Isn't that awful? That is real good. It's real good. Because you're comfortable. When you do it that way, you're comfortable. The most powerful thing on the face of the earth is the simple, unadulterated truth. So much so that somebody said one time, know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free. <clears throat> and in all of our affairs, this holds true. In business and play and family and it works. I've known many over the years, particularly those who have become and maybe still are so-called circuit speakers who have felt that the little embellishment might make their story more interesting. So they got to build it up a little. And first thing you know, they're drunk. Or they get to thinking they're big in the program. You know, they're experts in this program. Because people tell them how good they are. And they believe they're pressed. The next thing you know, they're drunk. You can't get big in this program box. No way. If you and I could have handled this deal, we would have done so, and we would not be members of our program. We had plenty of time. I had 43 years to run my life. During which time, I was the star of the show and the director of energies. <clears throat> and I gave it my best shot. All my wit and wisdom I put in. And I lost. I lost. As I told you, the right old age of 43, I was a failure as a husband, a father, a businessman, a man, and a drunk. And that's all the departments I had. But I had in more departments, I'd have been a failure in those two. That's all. And I take credit for that. The last 29 years, I take no credit for at all. I thank God. And you, and maybe I should put it the other way, I thank you and God. Because there's people like you that rocked me to sleep on my first night. And it was living with people like you that I came to see. That I had a God of my very own. I didn't even know what it took place. So, in my thinking, maybe I should say first that I'm grateful to you, and then I'm grateful to God. It don't make any difference to me because I have come to see that God is people. God is people. And so it don't make any difference. Now, 
in all of our affairs means at home. You see, the thing that makes this program work for us is Alcoholics Anonymous and Fellowship of Men and Women who share who share their experience, strength, and hope, one with another in love. Who share. There are very few people in Alcoholics Anonymous that will tell you anything. We don't tell. We share. I have a guy that calls me sponsor. Who tells? <laughs> and he makes it sick pretty good. I tell him, says I to him, I says, you're not even a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is made up of people who share. You don't share with anybody. You tell them. But, Whatever you do, keep doing it. <laughs> because I go over there on his birthday and there's 65 sober kooks in his backyard. 65 of them. And every one of them are his babies. And every one of them are people I couldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. And they're sober. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. The society could not do without one Clancy. But if it had to, it would wreck the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, I shared when I had discovered I was sober. I started sharing with drunks. I like to think of it like this. Many of you have heard me say this before. I like to think of me as a glass of dirty water, a dirty glass full of dirty water. And during my drinking days, I was always knocking it off, quitting. Every time it got too bad, I quit. And when you quit, it was like pouring out the dirty water. And now you got an empty glass and it's dirty. And empty. And it can only be empty so long and you got to fill it again. And you fill it back up with dirty water. When I came to the program, I didn't quit. I haven't quit drinking yet. And I came with a dirty glass full of dirty water. And at the first meeting, a little stream of clear water started running in there. And I left it, and I came back and came back, and the little stream of clear water kept running in. And after a while, I discovered that the glass was clean, and the water was clean, and the glass was full. And then I had to start trying to give it away. 
and it was only kicked to the drunk because the drunk gave it to me. And I shared with the drunk. And as time went on, she started straightening up. And eventually, it was straight. And the water was still running in because I'm still going to beat the clear water. And then it was filling on all directions to whosoever will. It was good. And I shared with lots of people, Jews, Gentiles, and Greeks, blacks, whites, all kinds of people. I shared. But my youngest son, I told, I didn't share with him. I told him. <clears throat> because, you see, when he came along, he was born with goose paint in his ears. And I was born with a pitchfork in my hand. And I couldn't understand it. I just couldn't understand it. When he was that high, we lived over in Beverly Hills. We had alleys behind the houses. Picked up the garbage and stuff from behind the alley. Old Dick used to run the alleys. They'd find where somebody thrown away a colorful dress or something. He'd get it. And he'd bring it in the garage. And he'd make a costume out of it. And he'd get himself some earrings and he'd paint himself all up and had his costume and he'd come out and put on a show. Six years old, seven years old. And I'd look at him and I'd say to myself, what the goddamn hell have we got here? <laughs> and I started trying to make him over after my design. <laughs> tried to put a pitchfork in his hand. He didn't know what a pitchfork was. And we, he was 10, I guess, or 11, when I sobered up. <clears throat> and he got to uh, be a little older, and we sent him to Mona school. And he, uh, he got pretty much the whole package. Kids can paint and draw and play and sing and dance and stuff, you know. And he was taking art. He was taking art and philosophy, as a matter of fact. Art was his major and philosophy was his second. And so I'd go out there and take him to dinner once in a while. And he'd tell me the uh, values of modernistic and futuristic painting. And he shouldn't have done that. <laughs> now mind you, I'm sharing with everybody else. And he tells me about the values of modernistic and futuristic painting. I said, the very idea of a guy with my blood in his veins thinking there's value in that stuff. Why, says I, have seen a better picture than that when old cow slapped her tail up against the sun. 
five in the morning. Now that's a good way to win friends and influence people. If they happen to be your son. <laughs> and of course, when he talked with his friends about philosophy, he got a painter friend with the name Martin. He's doing a good job. Has his own tools now. And they were talking philosophy in my house. And I sat and listened to him a while. It was obvious to me that he didn't know what they were talking about. So I had to straighten him out. <laughs> and I made him sit there and listen to me for an hour and a half. So one of them killed me. But they didn't. Well, I couldn't understand why we couldn't get along. I couldn't understand. And I was trying my damnedest to get acquainted with that kid, and I could not understand why I couldn't. And we have been living in the house we live in now for about, say, ten years. And we have a tremendous view of the from every room in the house, as a matter of fact, but particularly out of the living room. And people have been telling me for 10 years what they saw out of my window. And it gradually dawned on me, as people kept telling me what they saw out of my window, that nobody that ever looked out of that window told me what I saw. And eventually I came to see that nobody sees what I see out that window. And something started clicking in my mind. Now, up until that time, it had never occurred to me that nobody sees what I see. It had never occurred to me. I grew up thinking the white was white and black was black and a cow was a cow. And anybody that looked at a cow saw a cow. And if they were looking at the same one I saw, they saw the same cow. But they don't. And the way I found it out was people telling me what they saw at my window. And I started thinking, something wrong with me. It isn't the kid, it's me. He sees things that I don't see. And then I got thinking about this philosophy did. <clears throat> and I saw that I was trying to make the kid cross the street in St. Louis when he was in Chicago. You can't do that, kids. <laughs> you got to be in St. Louis to cross the street in St. Louis. So I said to my wife, we're going to London. And she says, why? I said, to get acquainted with the kid. And we went to London. And we went to dinner. And I told this kid how blind I'd been.
totally unaware of the fact that people don't see what I see. How blind that is. And how I came to see by people telling me what they saw of my window. Why, who was talking about it when he said the bandage in his face? And I'd come over to apologize to him. To make my amends. And then I told him about the philosophy. And I apologized to that. And I made my amends. And the first thing you know, the refinery got thrown out of the restaurant. We were laughing and hollering and having a picnic. They put it through us out. Because you see, the dam went out. And we shared with each other. After that, we went pretty well all over Europe. And when we came home, he came with us. And we were due in uh, Roanoke to talk on the way home. We got off the plane in Chicago, visited some of my people, and he'd never wanted to do that. But he wanted to go. And we got down to my mother's place. Mother is 96. Still going. She's not mobile, but she's keen as a whip. And we were visiting there, and then we were going to drive on down to Louisville. Visit the park there, and on over to Roanoke. And the kid says, I've got to go back to New York. But I'll be in Roanoke on Friday. Because I've got some business to do in New York. And he went. And I said to my wife, he'll never be in Roanoke. Because you see, both Mrs. and I were talking there. And I knew he wouldn't come. And Friday he was in Roanoke. And I told him before he went, I said, Dick, these people down there are our people. They love Mr. C and I. And they won't, uh, they won't leave you alone. You can't be anonymous there because they won't leave you alone. And he says, don't care. And he was there. And he listened to his wife talk, to his mother talk, my wife. He listened to Miss C on Friday, Friday night, or Saturday, I forgot. And he listened to me the next morning. And the tables were round. And there were about ten people at each table. And he told me afterwards that Dick would sit there Listen a little bit. And he'd say, I never knew. I never knew. And a little later, I never knew. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about taking this thing home. 
can share our experience, strength, and hope. At home, nobody likes to be told anything. We think that we're old enough and smart enough that we should be able to tell our kids they don't want to be told. They want to share, and they want, don't want to know how smart we are. They want to know how we beat ourselves to death and what we did to get out of it. They want to share with us. The language of the heart has no age. One of the great experiences of my life, I guess it's been there two years now, they carried me up to North Battleford, Saskatchewan, to the inner provincial ality meeting. And we have 12 or 1,500 kids for me to share with. It's a fabulous weekend. Don't think that they can't understand you when you share with them, because they can. If you share and don't tell, it's fantastic. And these women that we married, if the shoe had been on the other foot, My wife wouldn't have lasted 60 days. That 60 days would I put up with the performance out of my wife that she put up with me. And she put up with me for 20 years. 20 years. Now, you and I, I suppose you're like me. I sort of dreamed all my life, you know, about getting up every morning and having a new woman across the table from me. <laughs> I thought that was a great deal. I thought I got all that, that, you know, particularly you shouldn't get in a rut. Be married to the same broad for 50 years, you know. That's indecent in California. But I seem to see that every morning I have a new woman across the, across the table from me. Because, you see, we're changing people. We're changing people. You never heard me before. I'm not the guy I was yesterday. I'm the guy I was yesterday, plus yesterday's experience and its lesson. So we're always new. And that woman that you're married to is always new. One of the greatest handicaps we
we put on ourselves. Oh. Categorizing each other, and particularly the members of our own family. When we live close to them, we come to think that we know everything they're going to do, the way they're going to react to everything. We've got them characterized, categorized. But we haven't. Because they're changing too. There's one of the jobs we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. And particularly it's one of the great jobs that we have for our mates, whether they be the lady who is in Al-Anon or the man who's in Al-Anon. Or who isn't the alcoholic. Maybe not in any group. But when a guy gets sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and does these things, he grows like a weed. If he does these things, he can't keep from growing. Growing like a weed. And my wife went to meetings with me for six years before Alanon was born. And she thought she knew this thing real good. She knew all the words. But she listened to me for six years. Listened for me for six years. She'd like to have had me right there where she punched me. And when I was there, she punched me. <laughs> you know, she was listening to me. And we moved to, well, wait a minute. Alanon was born. And she started to meet him in Beverly Hills. And I let him live. And he grew and prospered. And she thought she was doing great. Because she was the mother hen. And she told him. And we moved to Laguna. When I was 11 years sober, we moved to Laguna. And here she was with nobody to uh, tell. Wasn't any Alan in Laguna. <laughs> And I and my business were still in town. And whilst when we lived in Beverly, I could go get her and take her to meetings with me every night, you know. Have dinner at home, take her to meetings. But when we had in Laguna, that couldn't happen. And so, she got very, very depressed. She put the B on me to slow down. I must stay home a little bit because she wasn't, she, she wasn't getting the attention that she ought to have. She had no friends down there. And I left, it lasted from February to Thanksgiving, trying to Go down. And I got so uncomfortable I couldn't live. So after we'd had a Thanksgiving dinner on this year, the kids were there to see. And I told them, I says, kids, 
And Mr. T, I got an announcement to make. From now on, when that phone rings, I gotta go. I can't pick and choose what I'm gonna do. I can't tell this guy, yeah, I'll talk to you, and this one I won't talk to you. There'll be drunks in both places. But I can't do it. And when that phone rings, I've got to do what they want me to do. Within my power. And if you don't like it, get yourself another husband and get yourself another father. I had to do it because I was I couldn't live that way. Suppose the guy hadn't have been there when I went. You know. So Dick sort of came into that picture too. He said, Mom, why don't you start another Alan on you? Because his mother was deeply depressed. And she started another owl on you. And the next thing you knew, she was going to town. Because this time, she started it for her. And she started going like a weed. And she's found the same thing I found. It's a beautiful thing. And we share. We share all the time. Now, we don't always agree, but it isn't necessary. We've learned how to disagree and not be disagreeable. And that's a good thing, you know. And we share. We don't tell. I don't tell anything. She don't tell me. We share. Now, this is what we're talking about. To practice these principles in all of our affairs. In all of our affairs. Now we said this morning that when we learned why people did what they did, they couldn't hurt you. That people do what they do because they have to, not because they want to. When we know better, we do better. One of the things that we didn't speak of yet was this. That in simple psychology, they told us that the two great needs of the individual are to be needed and to be loved. Everybody gets that in psychology, I guess. The two great needs are to be needed and to be loved. And that's just as backwards as everything else you told me. What about business and about God? Totally backwards. The two great needs of the individual are to love and to do. These are the great needs of the individual. To love and to do. A certain doctor that writes on my blackboard. Called me one night at midnight. And he says, Chuck, what's your definition of love? I says, it's the same at 10 o'clock in the morning. He says, midnight. What the hell are you calling me at midnight for? 
He says, what's your definition of love? I said, you move logic. But he says, what is it? I says, action. He says, what do you mean? Action. I says, action. If you love somebody, you do things for them. You do things. You don't trade with them. There's no barter in love. There's no barter in love. You do things because you want to. With no strings on it at all. Marriage isn't a 50 50 thing. It isn't a 75 25 thing. Marriage is a thousand to nothing. You don't barter. You don't barter with God. And you don't barter with each other. The simple, unadulterated truth. The motivation. Love. And love is the fulfillment of the law. You do it because you love it for free and for fun. Fantastic thing. Yes. You do have a new woman across the table from me every morning. It's beautiful. How much more interesting life is. I have one more thing that was fantastic in my life that uh, I want to share with you. Came out of total collapse, total failure. And the fact that I had already practically ruined my body and my mind. Many of you have heard me say that when I got here, it took me over six months to put strategy prayer together in English. Not spiritually, in English. I couldn't make that thing make sense. It's kind of a mind I brought. And it took me three and a half years to get over falling on my face. After my last bill. That's the kind of body I brought. I guess I had as many related disorders as you usually have. My wife was divorcing me. I believe that to be a related disorder. My kids wouldn't come home when I was around. I think that's a sort of a related disorder. My boss had sent word to the house that if I ever step foot in the plant again, he's going to show me through the window. I think that's a related disorder. Because that means that you ain't got nothing coming in. 
I had no health, no sanity, no job, no nothing. But I came here merely for sobriety, just for sobriety, so that I might rub out what I could of the record before dying. As I told you yesterday, I knew I was going to die because it come that close to it. The next to the last time out, and this was worse. So I'd accepted the fact that everything dear to him in life was gone and should be gone, and I wasn't entitled to have it back. And I had accepted death. So I wanted nothing for me, not even surprise. And incidentally, this is the greatest freedom on the face of the earth. Freedom is to not want nothing, no time for yourself. This is total freedom. Now, my first surrender, done by the bottle, lasted three and a half years. It's the greatest period of miracles through which I ever lived. And it was a period of total non expectancy Total non-expected. From God or man. My wife, my kids, nobody. My boss, nobody. The greatest period of miracle through which I ever lived. Every little piece of the jigsaw puzzle of life fell together in that first three and a half years. But a bad thing happened. I became somebody again. In those three and a half years. And when you're somebody, you've got rights. And when you've got rights, you have to defend them. <laughs> so here I find myself, after three and a half years, a poof, freedom, having to consciously surrender. And it griped the hell out of me. I couldn't make sense out of it, all. Here for three and a half years, I've been free. And now I have to start consciously surrendering. And I'm saying to myself, why does this thing come back? Why, why, why? And I looked at it for the next 13 years. And I was 16 years and six months sober before I got an answer to that thing. That it was satisfactory to me. And after 16 years and six months, I got an answer that was totally satisfactory. I found something good in the human ego. It's the burn of the saddle. It's the thing that keeps us walking. And when you and I have committed ourselves, namely, we made a decision to turn the world alive over the care of God. When we have made this commitment, there's no way that we can stop walking. We get fat and complacent and we stop walking and we get our tick caught in the ringer. And the harder we pull, the worse it hurts. And we find that we either have to surrender again or get drunk. And so we start consciously surrendering. I did. But I didn't like it, and I never liked it for the 16 years. 
for 13 more years before I got the answer. Now I am convinced that we will never reach a point where we will have to surrender. That time will never come. An infinite father, an infinite child, and an infinite journey. Now, it took me 70 years to learn that it isn't what we know that makes this life so consumingly interesting. It's what we don't know. It's what we don't know. The thing that makes this life so fantastic is the discovery as we walk up these stairs. There will always be as much ahead of us as there is right now. An infinite father, infinity. I don't even know what it means. Infinity. An infinite father, an infinite child, and an infinite journey. No destination. An infinite journey. And there will always be as much ahead of us. Here is right now. Fantastic. And that's the wonder of this thing called life. That's what makes it so consumingly interesting. It's not what we know. It's what we don't know. Sharing our experience, strength, and hope, one with another in love. And all the departments of our life. The language of the heart has no age. And when we see that this life does not contain water, even in the business world, it's, it's, it's amazingly wonderful. Amazingly wonderful. Now we're going to talk about the business world. But then we start. We got some more time. It's good. I was afraid I was running out of time. We won't get through with this, but we're going to talk about it a little. On the Thursday before Christmas, 1945, I hated my job. I hated my boss. And I hated the people who worked for him. The job was beneath my dignity. Anybody with my ability should be at least a senator, if not president of the United States. And here I was in the picture business, you know. And it was obvious to me that I was the only one around that had any brains. And the boss had all the money. And he was telling me what to do. And the very injustice situation uh, caused me to do a little drinking. <laughs> that was the Thursday before Christmas. The Friday before Christmas, he called me in. Gave me that little talk and gave me 3,000 bucks for Christmas, Fred. 
And I got drunk on the way home. Came to after the middle of January. Finally went down there. Got the end of January. And he came in and threw me out. Threw me through the window, but he didn't. And being in the state I was in, physically and mentally, it took everything I had to do the simplest things. To this myself was a major operation. And it forced me by necessity to give my entire interest, attention, and love to the thing I was doing. I couldn't do it. And this is one of the greatest lessons I ever learned. And of course, this too was out of absolute necessity. I didn't figure this out. But anything that we give our entire interest, attention, and love to is the most interesting thing in the world. Even if it's nothing but saving and dressing. It's the most interesting thing in the world. I went down to my office to clear up the desk. That was the, the, the office and the home were the two things that I'd fouled up the worst. And so there's where I had to do my stuff. Mainly, that was my big job, to rub out the record, you see. And I started rubbing out a record in the business. Helping people do things that they needed to have done because I wanted to. And by necessity, giving my entire interest, attention, and love to the thing at hand. And I got lost in doing that. And as I told you yesterday, after maybe two years, I discovered that I was still trying to clean up my desk. Unless I forget it. When I was 11 years sober, I bought the business. And I owned it until three years ago. When I sold out. And when I sold out, about this many men worked for me. And many of them had been with me for many years. And they had a host of an of skin inside their hands. They were mechanics. They were machine men. They were metal men. They were carpenters. They were installers. And they worked with their hands. And when I sold that business, it 
Everyone loves monkey's balls. Every one of them cried, and I cried. I had learned to love that business. And love the guys that were in it, working with me. And that was the business I hated on the Thursday before Christmas. That's what we're talking about. When you give your entire interest, attention, love to the thing at hand, it becomes the most interesting thing in the world. Now, a few years before, I wouldn't have drawn a plan for Jesus Christ. I was too big a man. You know, I had a guy working for me. And I told him what to draw. And he didn't draw it like I told him. He got help, you know. <laughs> I went back down there last January 1946, and I didn't have anybody working for me. And I started drawing those plans myself. And I drew them till I got out of the business. I never had anybody in there drawing plans. I drew them. And it was amazingly interesting, you know. Beautiful. <clears throat> now, what are we talking about? We're talking about rubbing out a record. You can't rub it out a record thinking I want or don't want or like or don't like or you die, die, die. You rub out a record by doing something for somebody without a price tag on it. And it's amazing what happens. It's amazing. For instance, after I've been sober a while, there was a Jewish gentleman who had been in the business for a long time food business, and he retired, made a lot of dough, and he retired, and he had two sons-in-law, and he was going to build a building for his kids, for two sons-in-law, set him up in the market business, and at that time, it was the biggest single floor operation in the country. It's panorama market, so I've seen it. And it came time for me to go see him. Now, he, he, he was offering in the, what was called at that time, the palace market. On Manchester, on Sepulveda, uh, just south of Manchester. One of his sons had always run that market. They called it the palace market. And over in the meat department, there was a series of offices and a little balcony. And it came time for me to go see this guy. And I went to see him. And there were a lot of people on the balcony. Waiting to go in. And I waited my turn. And by the time I got ready, there were a lot of other people waiting to see him. And the door was open. And he was 
And I went in, and this guy's name was Morris Weinstein. God rest his soul, he's gone now. And Morris sat there looking like an accident going someplace to happen. And he told me what I was going to have to do if I got his business. I took him about five minutes to tell me. And when he got through, I said, Morris, I think you got me wrong. You're talking like I came out here to send you something. I didn't. I came out here to help you if I can. And if I can't, you're busy and show them out. <clears throat> and he leaned back in his chair and he says, I know it, Charlie. And I put it in the market for him, some $75,000. And when the market opened, a bunch of these people that were on the balcony were out there to see the opening, you know, with all the vendors did in those days. And I showed up, and they grabbed me, and they took me off in the corner, and they said, Charlie, I was Charlie in business. So that was the greatest piece of reverse psychology that we've ever seen. So we've been talking about it ever since. That's what one told me. Well, I said, we heard you. So you went in there through Morris. And we said, I've never been sell. And we came out with a $75,000 order. Greatest piece of reverse psychology that we've ever seen. This is what the hell you're talking about. If that guy was subject to reverse psychology, he wouldn't have the two million dollars. <laughs> he knows more about reverse psychology than all of us put together. I told him the simple unadulterated truth, and he knew it. That's what I'm talking about. He knew it. I said, you think you got me wrong. You think I came out here to say something. I'm here to help you if I can, and if I can't, you're busy, and so am I. And I met every syllable of it, and he knew it. You see, this thing we call the truth is, is a very powerful thing. It's the most powerful force on earth. And there's no barter in it. Before you came looking with. But you have to find it where it is. And it's right here. And it's an inside. <laughs>